Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome to Inside the Tunnel, brought to you by VT Scoop 24-7 Sports. My name is Andrew Alex. And would you look at this. For the first time in an extremely, at least it feels extremely, long time, we got everyone. Matasis, Doug Bowman, and the one and only President Chairman of the board, chief executive officer, dictator of VT Scoop, 24-7 Sports, Evan G. Watkins with us here today. What's going on, man? Oh, man. I thought the final whistle blew. I successfully did my first fall sports season of three kids in three sports on different fields every night of the week. And it is great to not have to go anywhere tonight. Be here with you guys and talk some football or whatever else you want to talk about. And this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. But take Doug, gentlemen, how are we doing? I- I'm looking at the last time Evan was on and it was after the ODU game. So, Evan, you got about, what's that, eight games to catch up on? Yeah, it was a nice little uh, rest and relaxation of basically my life. My life revolved around from 6 p.m. to 8.30 or 9 every night on either a baseball or a soccer field, watching anywhere from 10 to 12-year-olds to 8-year-olds to 5-year-olds. And it was a memorable experience. I don't know that I want to do it again. Any five stars out there on the field? A lot of three stars. You know, when you get when you when you're at the five the five year old level, they're uh, you know they're playing for fruit snacks. They're not worried about nil. They're all about what kind of gummies you're going to give them after the practice. And then you know you get up my my eight year old seven year old playing in the he's playing up a year in the eight year old division of. Whoa. Can't you know how does he do there and scored a goal on his last game? So that was that was exciting. And then you know, my oldest is like in that 10 to 12 baseball world, and that's a world of its own. Like it's it's <laughs> insane. So, but yeah, yeah. So I missed a lot. But let's do this. All right. Well, without further ado, I'm sure anyone who takes time out of their week. To listen to a podcast full of Virginia Tech analysis. Yeah, it's not going to come as any surprise to them, but Virginia Tech got like wiped the floor. I don't even know what like a polite term to use on the podcast. It's a good term. What happened to them would be. Yes. They were the wash rag wiping the floor. It was not good. And pretty much never never felt competitive 
even from that first drive where drone takes the sack and there's penalties and Louisville marches down the field and you just felt like uh, we are looking at two teams on two different levels of football right now. And that did not let up until the final whistle. But the scoring streak stays alive. Doug Bowman. It's huge. Doug Bowman, do you watch the, uh, or have you ever watched Game of Thrones? Uh, the first season. Okay, you That's understand? it. Yeah, I, I just get with the times, man. man. Yeah, Doug's, I got Doug's nothing. I got no defense. I mean, okay, but Matei and Evan, you have watched Game of Thrones, absolutely. Yeah. So Doug is like the Night's Watch of the scoring streak. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely. don't know what that means. It sounds funny though. <laughs> it would take too much time to explain it, but the other guys get it. If you got like a month, watch it. Watch the whole series. Except for the last season. I just get distracted, and then like I look up, and I'm like, I don't know what's happening. So it's maybe one day. Maybe one day. Either way, that's neither here nor there. We went into the game, all of us, with the exception of the great Colby Crawford, expecting that not only would Virginia Tech lose, but Virginia Tech wouldn't cover the nine-ish point spread. It obviously changed a little bit over the course of time. But we were all in double digits. And Louisville did that and plenty more. So Virginia Tech even failed to meet our relatively modest expectations for how they would perform in that game. The big question that I've been asking, and I posted on Twitter, I've been all over the place talking about this, is how do we quantify this or maybe not even quantify, but interpret this as we look to these final three games against teams that resume-wise are nowhere near Louisville, right? Does our level of confidence go down? Evan G. Watkins, I'd like to start with you. Do you feel as good as you did before the ball was initially kicked off at 3.30 on Saturday about Virginia Tech's chances to win two out of three games and make a bowl game going forward. Yeah. When, when we had the uh, rest of the season predictions a few weeks ago that, that Matei put together, I think I had Virginia tech winning four out of five and losing to Louisville. So I still feel about the same. Like I knew going into that game that Virginia tech could not get into any type of a shootout or try to play from behind. If they're going to beat Louisville, they had to score fast, score often, and their defense was going to have to come up with stops, and that wasn't going to happen. Louisville's too fast. Their defense, uh, their defensive line was too strong. Um, it actually reminded me of the inverse a little bit when the game first started of the Virginia Tech-Syracuse game. You know, when when Virginia Tech hosted Syracuse, it was was an APR, got a sack on the first play. Nothing went anywhere, and then you know you you uh, you continue to watch that game, and one t- one side was completely dominant over the other. This to me was more dominant than the Florida State game. Um, Louisville was just, you know, they they curb stomped uh, Virginia Tech. So I expected them to lose. I expected them to to I expected Louisville to outclass them at pretty much every level. I did think Virginia Tech would score. 
Um, I think they had a decent opportunity. I, I didn't really like that the pick play call on um, on right. You know, I didn't think that that was a legitimate uh, call right there. But you know, this is kind of what I expected. You look ahead and you look at you look at Boston College. Um, if they don't have their running back, you know, they're pretty one dimensional. Their uh, their quarterback is slippery. He's a guy that can that can play, but you know, I think if you can contain him you can shut them down pretty easily. You look at NC State who had, you know, they they have the transfer watch now on the on the quarterback or the I'm going to sit out the rest of the year and preserve a red shirt for whatever reason he wants to do. Uh, so they're going to be playing with Brennan Armstrong, you know, and they didn't look good with him. And then you got UVA who nobody really knows. Like sometimes they look good, sometimes they look bad, but they're not winning games. So I feel the same as I did going in. I thought they'd lose to Louisville. They did. I think they'll win the next three. I'll say this, and to quantify it, probably I, we all said Louisville would win this game. I think I put 35 to 21, um, somewhere in that range. I think most of us said by two touchdowns at the very least, but I would say heading into Louisville, I'm probably thinking, okay, Virginia Tech has a 65 to 75% chance of making a bowl game. And I don't, I don't know that it drops off that much. I'm, you know, like it, my confidence definitely goes down, but I think if you look at the season, like we can say Virginia Tech has been inconsistent this year, you know, they're, whatever the scoring margin was the last two games, like 40 plus points over Syracuse and Wake Forest. And then they come in and lay an egg against Louisville. But I feel like since Kyron Jones has been the quarterback for this team, it's been the exact same formula. You're able to beat up on bad teams when you establish the run game, you have your offense eating clock and your defense doing enough against teams that really don't have punishing quarterbacks and the defense can key in against the run. Now you're playing against the second best team in the ACC, a, a team that is, you know, a top 13 team in the country that's perfectly balanced on both sides of the ball, sound. Um, you know, I think this was Louisville's, one of Louisville's best games and one of Virginia Tech's worst games. And you put those two things together and that's kind of the score we get, I think, from that 65% confidence, maybe I dropped down to like a 55% confidence looking at the rest of the year. I think like this only further cements what we knew about Virginia Tech is that they need to play their brand of football to establish the run, to, you know, take out whatever makes the opposing offenses good and make them one dimensional. And, you know, it's worked against bad teams and, Fortunately for Virginia Tech, like you look at the rest of the schedule, it's not like a lot of these teams, maybe aside from Boston College, and who would have thought that you would say this before the year, but out of these last three games, maybe Boston College is the scariest opponent for Virginia Tech in terms of what they want to accomplish on the football field. But my confidence drops slightly, but I, you know, we still all said this is going to be a loss. And I still think, you know, you have three very winnable games, but Virginia Tech is just a very mediocre team at this point in time. And you can't just expect them to go out and, you know, they really have to do the one thing that they're good at in order to win football games. And 
clearly they can't do it against, you know, elite competition. They've proven it against poor competition. And now, you know, they're playing a mixture of mediocre and bad competition in the last three games. So definitely still optimistic for, you know, a bowl berth. But overall, I think the confidence in the way that they played Louisville and perhaps the worst game of the year, maybe Purdue's up there as well. Like that takes a little bit of a hit. And the last thing I'll say is it, you know, I think the mood changes drastically when you're, you know, fighting for second in the ACC heading into this game. People are talking about Charlotte. All of a sudden there's rumors that some guys on Louisville may not play hopes were at an all time high for this game. So to see the result after all of that, all those hopes crushed, that definitely is another factor as well. Just to interject here before Doug goes to your point, Matek, and this is just, you know, evidence that I see out here in the streets, but there is a Virginia Tech alumni bar. It's called Graham Street Pub. It's right next to Bank of America Stadium. Last season, around this time, late October, early November, I may have been myself and people that I can rope into doing anything with me, made in the only tech fans at that establishment. Coming off a round of golf on Saturday, showing up just around game time. This is a bar with essentially three levels, downstairs, upstairs, outside patio. Couldn't find a seat. Could barely find a place to stand. Place was packed tech fans. So from a momentum standpoint, right? And I I think where you want to pick up momentum is not amongst the sickos, because the sickos will stick around and just get mad amongst the casuals, you know, the alumni of your university. And those people were out and willing to show their hokey colors. And fortunately, we're sadly disappointed. But maybe it's a, a worthwhile reality check that Tech might be able to beat Pitt and Wake, and perhaps that doesn't change anything against Boston College and UVA, but number 13 in the country, not just yet. Second point, to go over our predictions going into the game, we really were all on the same page. Doug had him by 13. Evan had him by 14. Matei had him by 14. I had him by 13. The only outlier being Colby, who had Virginia Tech winning by four. Doug? Yeah, I think uh, I think you're definitely a little disappointed in the in just the sheer nature of the blowout that Tech wasn't even like you said got wiped off the field. I think we knew that Louisville was um, a kind of a different level team, top twenty five program at least, um, and and just about every single metric. And but you still felt, especially coming off that Florida State quasi rally there where they played them tough for three the last three quarters you thought i mean it, it felt like a two touchdown kind of margin was probably appropriate and that's not the case uh, i think it was i think it showed you know virginia tech all the charlotte discussion and the um all that stuff was like was essentially saying is virginia tech like a top 50 program right now and and that that answer is resoundingly a no um and so now the question is like all right they're probably better than like 80th if they're beating Pitt and wake and syracuse as bad as they were so now are they kind of at the top half of that range or 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 more towards the bottom and that's what we're going to find out 
over the next three weeks. I think I'm um, slightly, Matei covered it pretty well. I think I'm slightly less optimistic about the chances of getting to six wins. Probably only at this point because two of the next three are on the road. And um, over, I think it's 10 road games now under Brent Pry. Virginia Tech's one and nine with a lone win over over Liberty. I'm not sure. I think your confidence has to drop if you've got to win two out of the next three and two out of the next three are on the road. Um, it's a challenging. I, I, I just, until I see it, until I see Virginia Tech go on the road and, and, and beat uh, an ACC caliber team, like I think you got to be a little bit wary that um, there's, there's still quite a bit of development that the program has to do to, to kind of learn how to win on the road. So, you know, you look at them on paper, Boston college is beatable. NC state's beatable. UVA is beatable, all that stuff. But I'm, I'm kind of in the show me camp at this point um, with Virginia tech on the road. Um, so we'll see what happens in chest starting in chestnut Hill, which we've all talked about the trickiness of that game, especially at noon. A lot of what you said encapsulates my entire thought process, right? Because I'm not saying that losing to Louisville is a five-alarm fire by any means. Like, we knew, we didn't know, but majority of people predicted that Virginia Tech would lose that game. Probably not that close going in. But it represents a you know, a, a turn away from the inflection point that we saw between Marshall and Pittsburgh when things went from extremely n- negative, if you will, like Virginia Tech was showing their vulnerability week in and week out. And then with the exception of Florida State, where we can all kind of talk that away and say, well, it's a college football playoff team. They actually, for three quarters of that game, looked like they hung in there pretty much all sunshine and roses for that four-game period. You go to Louisville, and it, it, it serves as a, a splash of cold water on the face, if you will. It's like, oh, no. Maybe you've improved over the course of the season, but somewhere in there is that team that you remember. And to have the worst offensive output all year, I mean, I don't see how you – can feel the same. I don't think you need to feel that much worse. We don't need to pump up Boston College, UVA, and NC State as world beaters. But when Louisville can lose to Pitt and North Carolina can lose to UVA, it has to make you a little bit worried about the chances that things go wrong down this stretch i I think it was this pretty stark reminder of um the offensive line issues in particular that virginia tech has largely masked for the last for october um in terms of just how dominant louisville was at the line of scrimmage against virginia tech's offensive line and that's something they've kind of figured out especially those home games um that seem like they um they they found a way to have a have success in spite of the offensive line struggles, but um, there certainly appears to be a breaking point of 
depending on the strength of the opposition's defensive front that um it's just it's you you can't have success in spite of that and um Louisville clearly was leaps and bounds good enough up front to dominate that game right from the first play um I think you can put a little bit on the coaching staff for preparation and game plan and adjustments and all that stuff considering um, if you look at what happened against Florida State, they kind of figured it out. If you look at what happened against Louisville, it, they did, did, did not figure it out. Um, so I think, but I mean, you lose 34 to three like that with historically low offensive numbers. Um, it wasn't just the coaching staff. It wasn't just the players not executing. It wasn't just the talent level. It was, it was everything. So we don't need to spend too much time you know, recapping what was a pretty one-sided game, but are there any positives we could pull out of that outside of, I know in our MVPs, there were some votes for John Love, which honestly I didn't think of. I fully abstained. I wasn't sure if you could, if he was an offensive MVP or not. I think we did something similar last year. Uh, I think it was the Georgia Tech game where Tucker Holloway had like, he set the yeah. record, and we we said it's a gray offense. area. Yeah, it's a little bit of a gray area on on special teams, but the to to put it this way, are there any positives we can take out? Well, more than half of our votes for our weekly MVP article were abstaining, um, which kind of tells you not too much to take from. But at the same time, like the goal, the goal remains the same. Like I, this was the. possibly the worst case scenario i guess scoring zero points would be worst case scenario but like the goal of this team wasn't to go eight and four make it to the acc championship game like i know a lot of people were hoping for that but realistically the goal we've set it since the bye week get to six wins make a bowl game and i think we all thought louisville would be a loss you know, you could lose by a lot. You could lose by a little. It's still a loss. You still have three more games, and you got to win two of them now. I think we all knew that would be the case. Um, confidence goes down a little bit, but overall, I think, you know, the positive is that you're not playing an elite team for the remainder of the schedule. Um, there's nothing game-specific I can look at and say, okay, you know, you can build off of that. I think you just – you. You learn from your mistakes, see what happened on film, and you know go again next week. I think the the positive that I can find is kind of like what we talked about heading into Florida State, which is get out of Tallahassee w- without any key injuries. And I think that came to fruition against that's the that's the positive is that Tech got out of there with three games left, a loss, but that's a loss everybody expected. So they still have everything in front of them win two out of the next three and they got out of there without having to do that trying to figure out if they have the right quarterback in if facial tootin's still around if jalen lane's healthy if you know key injuries on defense like they they got out of there they got smoked 34-3 but they got out of there without creating any more any additional uncertainty um with the injury report for the rest of for the or at least heading into the last three games of the year to add on on the other side of that, and if if people read my uh, my MVP uh, uh, on the defensive side, they would have caught it caught it when I said Nazir Peoples was was my guy on defense because we haven't seen him healthy um, 
for a while. Uh, and while he, you know, defense got smoked and there's not much you can take away. I, that was a positive to me is that he actually moved well, hit well, played, played fast. That can only help build his confidence going into the next three. Virginia Tech wasn't beating Louisville. They can beat the next three. So having him playing at a high level and playing confident, trusting his knee after the injury and and being able to play fast, I think that only helps. Uh, you know, that's a positive for me going into these next three. I think they're going to need him. Um, and I think if as long as his – the hardest part getting over an injury is the mental aspect, and it looks like he's over that hurdle. I think that kind of touches on a surprising part of the game plan for me against Louisville was not playing Monsoor Delane at safety. Um, going again with Jalen Jones. Peoples played as well as he could, but at the end of the day, when you have a um, a hole at the other safety spot that you can game plan around, you can target effectively. Like Louisville knew they were going to break some big plays on, on Jones if they if they got the right matchup and the right formation at some at some point it was going to happen. I thought it was interesting that Tech opted against that. They went to it. Uh, what was that early in the year was it Pittsburgh and Florida state where they went to it a little bit, but they've kind of gone away from it, which is surprising, especially if you looked at Louisville coming into the game, Jamari thrash is their one truly um, dangerous wide receiver. And I mean, if you just chalk up, all right, Dorian strong, you're with, you're on thrash. All's good. And, and then thrash is out of the game and isn't playing. Um, I, I thought that was, I thought that was interesting that they that's a that's been a clear weakness the whole season and that that lineup with Jalen Jones in the game has not worked all season and they didn't that they hadn't even they were gifted an opportunity to kind of turn to the alternate defensive secondary and they I thought it was just kind of odd that they didn't take advantage of it. It also seemed like they went back a little bit to the rotation or the over rotation, if you will at linebacker. And I, I get it that, you know, if things aren't working, you got to try something else, but none of the linebackers stood out. They, none of them were, were playing gap sound. They, I think Louisville had the same approach that Florida state did. If you run the same thing over and over, it's going to break eventually. Um, and that's what we, we, you know, that's what we saw while the D line was getting mauled by Louisville's uh, O-line, there was nobody trying to, you know, the Virginia Tech's defense has always been trying to funnel the runner in, in, in run defense to the open man, try to funnel it to either a safety coming in, try to funnel it to the linebackers. And if neither of those guys are in position, you just funneled somebody to a touchdown. And I think that's what we saw a little bit against Louisville. We saw the same thing against Florida State. Linebacker play was was very subpar. You know, when you only have one safety out there, you know, Jalen Stroman tried to give it a go, couldn't go. Jalen Jones still not playing at the level he should be playing at. You know, it was it was a recipe for disaster. The linebacker rotation is it kind of makes the safety lack of rotation with Jones even more questionable. Um like I, I don't think they're doing that for matchups or like anything positive. They're not rotating linebackers for anything positive. It's, I think they just have a it's week ten of the year. It's a short lease, short leash. If you're still making mistakes, you're coming out. We got guys 
basically at your level behind you who were going to give them a chance. And so they've had no shame in switching out linebackers game to game, week to week, series to series. And that's the same can't be said about their, their willingness to change things at safety. It's kind of a weird situation where at one level they are trying to get somebody else in there who's not going to make mistakes. And then on the back, right behind them, they're, they're, they're not doing that. So taking what you guys just said, I kind of want to transfer the conversation into a even more so of a 10,000 foot view, right? Because before we talked about the chances of getting to six and six and while for this fan base and for the progress of this rebuild, six and six is totally a goal to aspire to. And coming from one and three, it'll feel even better. But consistent six and six records is what got the previous guy fired. And a couple of six and six records is what got the legendary coach pushed out to a degree argue amongst yourselves the goal is to get back to where virginia tech was and that's what this fan base wants which makes next year monumental in that regard i can speak for myself when i say that beating the brakes off pit beating the brakes off wake really really beating the brakes off syracuse put me in a mindset knowing who's coming back from this roster to think transfer portal here, transfer portal there, a little bit of development here, you know, with the guys that Pry has brought in himself. And maybe next year we can go back to having something nearing the expectations that we had at least like early Fuente going into the year. Right. We're not going to be talking about in our preseason predictions next year. Is it going to be five wins or seven wins? Maybe we're talking seven to nine with a little bit of upside. To seeing what you saw against Louisville hurt your future projections for this roster? Is it not as quick of a fix as we might have previously thought? You know, I I thought going into this whole season, um, I, I thought when Pry was hired, I said it on the message boards probably day one, this was a three-year rebuild. I know that you can go out and you can cut 60 players off your roster and pull 51 players from the transfer portal like like Dion did in Colorado. You could do that. That's not how Pry is going to do this thing. Pry is going to build homegrown and plug-and-play portal. Uh, where he can. We've seen it over the past, you know, class and a half. We're seeing it this class. One thing I even mentioned this uh, a little earlier on the message boards was we've seen a shift. I've seen a shift that the numbers projected for this class originally were around 21. Now they're about 18. That's three additional portal players. That's why those numbers are being held back. They want to go out and mine the transfer portal for a little additional help. So I think this is a three-year rebuild. I've, I've been in that camp for a long time. I think that for Prize approach, he wants to genuinely try to win the state of Virginia in the recruiting, uh, in the high school recruiting. 
to do that, he can't say we're only going to take four kids out of the state because we're going to go out and land 20 kids out of the portal. He, he can't do that. He has to continue to land kids in the state, build the roster organically that way, process through the portal, which is going to be huge. And I mean, that that's the key to watch after this season um, and then be able to bring players in from the portal. You know, right now, and I'm going to break this down on the site later on in the week, Right now, Virginia Tech's already over the scholarship limit for, for next year. So they don't have an option for portal guys right now. That doesn't mean they're not going to take any. They're going to take plenty. But hard conversations have to be had. Roster space has to open. That's the dirty side of, of college football. And when you look at the other part of it, are you optimistic for next year? I think part of me personally is I don't know that you can guarantee a lot of the players that are on the roster right now will be on the roster next year. That's the world that we live in with NIL. You know, I think, I think Kyron drones will be on the, be the the quarterback next year because he's already transferred. He doesn't have a degree. I think it makes it a lot tougher, but you look at some of the key players this year, you know, you look at guys like Monsor Delane. He's never transferred. He has a free one. Plus he's close to graduating. Dorian strong, never transferred close to graduating. He's got a free transfer if he wanted it. Um, you know, you look at guys, maybe like a Jalen Lane, maybe a Boschel Toot, still have eligibility on the clock, could, gra- could graduate, get a degree, could transfer depending on NIL po- uh, opportunities elsewhere. I think that's something you always have to keep in your in your mind. And as you're watching this and seeing it develop is everybody thinks you can go to the portal and grab these guys and build the roster at the same time, your team can be looking into the portal for a different opportunity um, for more more NIL money, more exposure, or just a different opportunity away from Virginia Tech. So I'm kind of taking the approach year by year of I don't know what the roster is going to be until the summer, and then that's when I'm going to de- de- try to decide what the next year is going to be. For Virginia Tech this year to make next year a success, they have to retain the talent they have. They have to build the O-line, and they have to get some D-tackles and some linebackers out of the portal. If they don't do that, I think we're looking at the same thing next year. I don't I don't think I have – people are going to read a lot into what Evan just said. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, don't, I, I don't think I have less optimism based off what happened against Louisville. Um, talk that up to – them being one of the top 20 teams in the country right now and they weren't that a year ago so kind of touching on evan like that's a turnaround that can happen quickly um and, and that was mostly just adding plumber and a new coach um to, to kind of stabilize things offensively for them but um i think i think as long as i think you'll still be pretty optimistic about next year assuming tech doesn't get decimated by portal departures um, based on who's projected to return. But the the only thing that I would be concerned about is, is if Kyron drones kind of falls on his face here over the next three games and doesn't give you the answer that you were looking for at quarterback. Um, quarterback is such an important position in general. It's an important position for a rebuilding program to find that guy. And that's what we've talked about that basically all year that he's, he, he looks like that guy or he did in October and he definitely has that potential. Um, I think you would want, I mean, even if tech went five and seven, if they lost two out of the next three, 
but drones played well and you were like yes that's the guy for next year i think you could look you could still feel pretty optimistic about developing and where the program is going without needing to go six and six this year um i i think answering that question the quarterback question which has has been something virginia tech has struggled with since a long time now um you know that would be that would be the thing that that maintains optimism largely regardless of the results over the next three three games if they go zero and three it's going to be tough to maintain much optimism but um if drones kind of keeps showing that he's got the potential to be a you know a, a high quality acc starter to beat the teams that virginia tech struggled to beat for the last three or four years within their own conference. And I think that gives you a lot of, a lot of confidence that you can build something around him with Tootin, with Jalen Lane, with the guys that they're developing behind them. Um, if you just look at the depth chart, I know Evan threw a lot of cold water on it, but a lot of guys is are supposed to are projected to be able to return. Um, but for me, it all starts with drones and whether or not you're going to the portal again to try and find a quarterback quarterback that's good enough to win six seven eight games next year yeah i think if if the top eight players from virginia from virginia tech leave via portal next year i'll be morbidly depressed and probably sign a petition to not cover the team next year but to evan's point i think like logically you can't solely expect addition to a roster like there's going to be some sort of attrition you know i i think back to was it 2016 when you have Gerard, you have Isaiah, you have Cam, Bucky, and then all of a sudden, you know, Gerard is telling Fuente, like, look, I know all the advice is telling me not to go to the NFL draft, but I'm going anyway. Like, things like things of that nature happen, and I'm not saying, you know, these guys are going to declare, but there's going to be some sort of attrition. But to Doug's point, I think you come into the season looking for answers at some positions, primarily at quarterback where Virginia tech has had a revolving door for what seems to be like five years now. And drones has answered a lot of those questions. He hasn't answered all of them. I think at running back, if you can bring those guys back, like you feel really good there. I think there's going to be a lot of change on the offensive line, or at least if you're going to compete or get to the level that you want to be at, you got to bring in multiple guys. Um, Hopefully there's no, attrition coaching staff wise specifically like you would want a longer run with a guy like ron crook to really implement his style and have guys have some continuity and then defensively i think you're a couple linebackers like you feel pretty good there you're already you know bringing along some younger guys to fill rotational um roles there so i think on paper you feel pretty good there's still you know, whether it's the coaching staff coming in with a consistent approach every week, like they've started to figure that out since, you know, I think the Pittsburgh game Um, player wise, it seems to be a little more consistent playing against lower end opposition. But I still think like overall, we're probably two years out from talking about like an eight and four season. And the examples are this Louisville game, Florida State, like you are very far away from being able to compete against elite level competition last year, you weren't winning any games really. 
this year you're starting to beat up on the lower end talent. Next year is about being a little bit more consistent, maybe a seven and five year. And then, you know, after that, hopefully you have the program at a level where you can start challenging these top teams in the ACC or whatever conference at that point, who knows? But I think we're still a little bit away from, you know, just plugging in a couple transfer guys from the portal and saying, okay, this is an A and four team. I still think there's a lot of work both from the coaching side and from the player side that needs to happen. I think this portal discussion kind of underlies how important these last three games are from a momentum proof of concept um, confidence that this is the right place perspective. Like Matei and Evan talk about, there's probably a surprise or two departure like at some point, like it's just going to happen in today's college football world that like somebody that you project to return and don't worry about that spot next year, you can't really count on that anymore. And I think you count on that less if Virginia Tech is four and eight, if Virginia Tech was three, had another three and nine year where now all of a sudden Brent Pry is definitely on the hot seat next year. And there's a lot of doubt about his future. Like if the Marshall if the if the tone of the program after the Marshall game had persisted throughout the rest of the season in October and stuff like all bets would be off for this roster right now. And I guess there's still a, a chance of that depending on how they finish. But if you can, you know, come in a year two and show the progress and get the quarterback question answered and 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 finish strong, reach what everybody um everyone basically acknowledged was the goal of like a bowl berth. This season would be a really, really positive sign for Virginia tech and something that they can point to is like Brent Pry and what his coaching staff is doing is working. I think that makes a big difference as you, as you enter the kind of the portal era and the portal battle um, that'll take place every December now until whenever they, whenever something else happens with the portal, but like showing that progress versus you know, another three, nine, four, and eight season, I think makes a big difference in, in in kind of maintaining that momentum from a roster management perspective. For for roster management too, circling back to something that you said earlier, Doug, is in for me the whole conversation of roster management has shifted. Now it's not necessarily looking at who's projected to come back eligibility wise. While that's obviously the key underlying factor of all things. You also need to look at who would be eligible to transfer this year and who's not eligible to transfer. So a guy that's already transferred, I I, I go back to drones a few times, like drones has already transferred in as an undergrad and does not have a degree. So if he doesn't have his degree, he would have to sit out a year to transfer. So for him, I think that the, the likelihood of him leaving is small because he already sat at Baylor. He transferred to Virginia Tech, won the job after an injury, and is now has the limelight. He's the guy. Do you want to go sit somewhere for a year, go back to sitting to then play? So I think when you look at a roster, I think that's the way we need to start understanding it is not necessarily who, you know, is is eligible to come back. Well, that's obviously the key, the key factor. It's also who does not have anything to gain if they were to leave via the portal versus those that do have something to gain, you know, and 
I know people might have might have been surprised when I said some stuff I said earlier, but like a guy like Monsor Delane already, there were already rumors last year that he was already being tampered with, that schools were trying to get in touch with him to get him to transfer. That stuff's that stuff is always happening. He's a good player that has eligibility remaining and hasn't transferred yet. So that is ha- that has to be a realistic idea in your head that you know some like people like him it may not be him. He might he might stay at Virginia Tech. I don't have any idea what he's going to do. I would imagine he's going to stay at Virginia Tech and try to go pro after three years. I think that's probably the best for him. Um. But I think, you know, when you get into that and you get into NIL, which is, you know, another thing completely that I think all Virginia Tech fans need to get in on and wrap their head around the fact that NIL is how Louisville got where they are. NIL is how Florida State got where they are. You want to field a competitive team. You have to have money to keep guys in your program and to add guys in your program that can play right away. So, you know, when it when when we're looking at projecting the roster, it becomes really, really murky until after the December transfer window. Um, I you typically, you know, we, we uh, I mean, there's only been like one of them now, but I don't I don't anticipate more people will transfer in the spring. I think more people will transfer in the fall um, after the fall season, not getting playing time, looking for something better, trying to get an opportunity, go in after the season don't stick through the season and stick through the spring and then enter. I think that's a, that's a less quality quality player. I think good quality players will enter in the, in, in December. So I don't know what the roster will look like until probably Christmas of ne- uh, for next year. Kind of be interested to see if uh, we've seen the opt out culture uh, in bowl games. I'll be interested to see in, in the transfer portal era where, uh, we kind of saw it with MJ Morris today at NC State, where yeah, we're already seeing it. Where if you're if you're a guy that knows you're going to the portal, if you're the second string left tackle or a, or second string wide receiver is not happy about the targets you've gotten all year, like are you going to play your final game of the year and risk injury and all that, or are you going to say I'm I'm done and I'm going to the portal in two or two weeks when it opens? Like I think it'll. I don't know that it's gotten that that has be, become mainstream yet, but it feels like it's kind of getting there. Yeah, I think that's going to be. I think that's getting there for sure. I mean, we're we're already seeing it, like we saw earlier today, guys that'll play their three or four, they'll play their fourth game and then say, "I'm going to shut it down for the rest of the year." Realistically, if you're doing that, your locker room is probably not behind you. The coaching staff is not behind you. They can't depend on you you're quitting on your team in the middle of the year not to come back. I mean, people can say what they want about the NC state quarterback, but, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't understand what benefit program gets from their starting quarterback saying, I'm not going to play the rest of the season. And then I'm going to come back next year. It just doesn't make any sense to me. If you're not injured, go out and play unless you're transferring. That's like when Derek King did that at Houston and was like, no, I'm just red shirt and I'm going to come back to Houston. Oh, Miami yeah. next year. Yeah. We saw it. Uh, I think didn't George Petaway do that early in the year for UNC? Yeah, he hasn't said anything yet about leaving or transferring. Don't know if he will or not, but 
pretty sure he only played in like three games, three or four yeah. games, and then shut it down. Speaking of NC State, uh, Jordan Houston as well. He played three games and then shut it down, opting to redshirt. So blast from the past there, a name on the trail for Virginia Tech. Yeah, I think, I mean, the redshirt thing has kind of been lurking around where you keep, if you have a redshirt available, you want to um, shut it down. I forget who the first guy who really did that was. Um, but I think kind of even the the end of the season, you play 10 games as a guy that's, but you're kind of lurking in the background is unhappy with your role and you want to get more playing time or whatever. And then you're like, am I going to play UVA on Thanksgiving and risk getting hurt? Or am I, am I set? I'm good. I'm going to hang it up after 10, 11 games, make sure I go into the portal healthy and see what happens from there. We have jumped around to so many different topics of conversation. I have my notepad here. I tried to get going on one thing. You've brought up a more interesting point. Uh, I mean, going back to the original question, though, when I talked about, like, plug and play, how much better can we get? You feel, at least you have felt, from the pit to Syracuse stretch, all right, this team is far more capable than the team was last year especially on the offensive side of the ball. You think to yourself, like, who are the most impactful players? Drones, Tootin, Lane, Bensley, Antoine Powell-Ryland, Canteen. Like, these are not guys that were on the roster last year. So in an imaginary world where you keep everybody, but because they're all transfers, can they transfer again? It's case-by-case basis, depending on whether they're graduate school or undergrad. But, you know, I I still think to myself, especially given the fact that, not the fact, but the presumption that some of the younger guys in the program, guys who were probably still in high school when Virginia Tech got dog-walked on the field at Yankee Stadium by Maryland, They're going to get better. They're going to get to the point where they can start playing and contributing. And a good transfer class combined with retention, combined with development, could lead you to the point where at least you can lie to yourself in the offseason. And I think that's what a lot of people intend on doing. But even the last three games, right, because as we've talked about really at length over the course of the last 15 to 20 minutes, if college football wasn't sales before, right, selling yourself to a high school kid, now it's selling yourself to a high school kid, selling yourself to, you know, your current roster, stay, don't leave, please, and then selling yourself to the best defensive lineman on MTSU that he needs to come and play for us next year. Like, <laughs> it's a totally different ball game now which is why perception even more so than before really represents reality and five wins can mean a lot of different things depending on how they happen if it's beating bc and then losing to nc state and uva the most important part being you lost to uva in your final game of the season the fan base is up in arms two-game losing streak going in. That might be harder to sell than 
you know, we beat BC, NC State. Oh, we lost a, a barn burner at home. It would probably be the opposite of a barn burner. It'd probably be like a 13-10 loss. We'll get into that two weeks from now. But then we crushed UVA on the road in Charlottesville. The drunk Virginia Tech stor- fans stormed the field once again. That's momentum. Like It feels like there's always still optics to create, no matter who you are. <laughs> really. That's definitely the case with the UVA game, if you remember – Justin Fuente beating UVA in 2020 probably maybe played a role in him getting another year um, in 2021. And then J.C. Price beats UVA in 2021 then. Yeah, and it turns out people are like, people are like, hire J.C. Price as the head coach. Um, So that game is kind of on its own as like a momentum positive thing. I think the biggest thing for Virginia Tech from a future roster and reload perspective or the biggest concern is that even in an ideal world where you don't have to go grab a starting corner and you don't have to go grab a starting running back or another wide receiver in an ideal world, the positions Virginia tech absolutely needs this year or next year are offensive line and defensive tackle. And are probably the two most competitive and hardest to evaluate positions in the portal. Uh, you see it every year with offensive linemen that are highly coveted and don't play or barely play. And and then defensive tackles, everybody needs one. And it's like, it like there's a lot hinging on Virginia tech in an ideal world, getting, getting somehow getting that right for next year. And it's probably unlikely that they can get it right. I mean, to your point about the UVA game, though, it really is so unique to this program. Not just because of the way the last 10 years have gone, right, where you've gone from being really, really solid to pretty much, generally speaking, mediocrity. And combine that with the fact that for a while we had that streak against the big going. And that on three, maybe four, Separate occasions, I know for a fact, the 14 season, the 15 season, and the 18 season. The bull streak and the UVA streak all come down to that last game when Virginia Tech is clearly vulnerable. And I I think it created hope from 14 to 15. From 15 to 16, you already knew Beamer was gone, but the streaks stay alive. You're not sending off Frank Beamer on what would have been a very embarrassing note. And that's coming from, you know, there's a lot of different embarrassing notes you can go out on. My dad's a Duke alum. You got a happy man walking out of Coach K's last game, losing to Carolina in the Final Four. 18, breathes life, or at least it seemed to. Breathes life with a a lucky win was that. Yeah, it, it was the, the Bryce Perkins fumble and then whatever that fumble in the end zone that somehow Tech fell on. Yeah. Once you're done with your article about group of five defensive linemen, I need you to do the <laughs> luck factor on the 2018 UVA game. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, 2021, you know, definitely for at least a short period of time raised hopes. So that game matters, especially for perception. Uh, last thing, and I, I texted 
Texans group chat before the podcast. Anything you want to get brought up, text me now or else I won't do it. But Tay brings up a point, and I waited an hour to say it. But uh, Grant Wells comes into the game. I did want to troll the fan base after one quarter on Twitter and say, put in Wells, didn't do it, wasn't ready for the pushback on that one. Stardism uh, <laughs> doesn't convey very well over plain text. But they did put in Wells for a good reason to make sure that Kyron Drones didn't get hurt in an absolute blowout game that Virginia Tech had no chance of winning. Fans, though, still upset, screaming for Pop Watson. Is that the right idea, wrong idea? Go ahead. Right idea. Matei smiling at me. No, I want to hear why. Because there's three games left. If Drones gets hurt in the need of the next three games, Pop can play in those three games and keep his red shirt. If Pop had played in a game that didn't matter, I mean, realistically, you're not going to win that game. Game's already over. You pull, you pull drones just for the reason of keeping him healthy. There's nothing Pop could have learned in that situation. So preserve him so that if something happens against Boston College, in like let's say something happened against Boston College, Pop could play the next three games as QB1, keep his red shirt, keep a year of eligibility, still play in the bowl game because bowl games don't count against eligibility. It was a math, that's a math situation where you don't want him to go over four games. So let me quickly ask you the question that I'm sure that all of our listeners are thinking about right now. Do you firmly believe that Pop would be a better QB1 right now than Grant Wells? Or is it just like, Wells is clearly going to leave. Pops the future. Give him the snaps. I don't think Wells is healthy. I, I think if Wells was was one hundred percent healthy, I think that you could make the argument that Wells has obviously has the experience. He could go in in a pinch and be QB two. He could be the Ryan Willis behind Hinden Hooker situation. That that could very well realistically be it. I do not think he is healthy enough to be a a starter for three games. If something happened to drones, I don't think Wells could stand up and, and take a beating in three games. I think you would need uh you would need somebody in there that's a little healthier. Pop is plus I think the offense has morphed so much from what it was under Wells to what it is under drones that I think you'd be going backwards by putting Wells back in charge for multiple games. Whereas with Pop, you could still run the same offense. Things would look different. They clearly would look different. He's the, He can't be an inside power running quarterback because he's, you know, he's 5'11", 180 pounds, maybe. Um, but I think you could run the same style of offense. But I think the big thing was if, if Drones – clearly wasn't hurt and was being pulled to keep the game, keep him from getting hurt in a game he was not going to win. And Virginia Tech was not going to win. It was simple math. You do not want to risk the possibility of burning Pop's red shirt if the worst case scenario happened to drones. No, that all lines up to me. I think obviously you want to get Pop some action this season and, Syracuse was the most obvious situation and my mindset was kind of like 
okay, what are the realistic, you know, possibilities that Kyron's going down? Obviously, you never know when you have a quarterback that's running between 15 to 25 times a game. Like, I understand all of that. I think, you know, in my head, it was the assumption that, you know, maybe you're putting in Grant for, you know, behind the scenes support. You're, you know, even if he's not fully healthy, you're putting him in the game to show appreciation for the role he's playing behind the scenes. Um, but, you know, I, I was also thinking about the clock for, for Wells, like, theoretically, he could play another year. I get a medical redshirt somehow. I don't know how that works with a four game threshold and whatnot, but you know, that was game number three for, for Wells. I know he's already redshirted once at uh, Marshall, but um, I totally understand your point. I think, you know, it makes logical sense. I think in an ideal world, maybe like you didn't know you were going to be in this position, obviously, but you know, it, it's clear to me that pop is the number two guy behind drones I think it that gets a little murky with signaling and maybe they're having side conversations with him, just letting him know, hey, we want to preserve you. We want to make sure you have all the time in the world to come in and replace drones later down the line. Um, but just in the interim, it just I think that initial shock of just seeing Wells coming back and knowing Pop is still on the bench when you want to get him some game reps and some action, I think that was like the major takeaway for me i think it's a combination of what evan said i i think there's a little bit of red red shirt math in there with watson especially if you're thinking maybe there's an extra game there in the bowl which then watson has you know three extra practice weeks maybe you want to get him in involved there in some way but i i also just don't think pop watson's ready to play that much or at all and Especially in a thirty-four to three game against Louisville, where you're just trying to get out of there. The 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 default decision was to go with them. You're not going to get drones hurt. You're going to go with the much more experienced guy to just get out of town. I I, I don't think it was a complicated decision in terms of of that. Of like, and I think if the if he's healthy enough to play, they're not. If he's not healthy enough to play, they wouldn't have put him in that that game to do that either. So, I mean, I I think he's the number two quarterback on the team, and that's why he went in the game next. I think if – where I disagree there is if – let's say Virginia Tech is straight molly-whopping Boston College. No idea if that will happen or not. But let's say they are. Who are they going to put in at the end of the game to get game reps? They're going to put in Pop Watson, in my opinion. They're not going to put in Wells. I think Pop is the number two guy. We'll I have a lot of family at the game at Boston College still. I think they I, – I think it was less of Wells being the guy and more of we don't want to run any risk of ruining Pop's long-term potential or long-term eligibility by playing him against Louisville. And then if worst-case scenario something happens, what? how are you going to fill in those next three games? and keep him under keep him at four or under four i just don't think there was a way to do that so you look at it and you say one it will hurt the the red shirt possibility two there's zero he can gain in this situation i think there's more harm that could be been could have been done to pop than good 
if you had thrown him in at the end of Louisville. So it made all the sense in the world to go with Wells and preserve him. But that's what I'm looking at is, is if something were to happen or if Virginia Tech is, you know, at the point where they can put in their second string guys anywhere over the next three weeks, I'm, I would lean heavily toward it being pop and not Wells. I guess we have to be brief on this. Is Virginia Tech beaten Boston College? Doug, the foremost expert on Boston College in America, tell us about them. Uh, are they going to beat them? I don't know. It's going to be really close. This feels like um, Virginia Tech has played a lot of different games this year. Uh, blowouts against Rutgers and Florida State and Louisville. Close games against um, Marshall and Purdue. Blowouts over ODU, Pitt, Wake, Syracuse. Like, kind of a broad spectrum of games there. Boston College has basically exclusively played close games, um, except for uh, the blowout. They got blown out by Louisville, too. So I think that's what you can expect this weekend, like, especially at home. Um, Boston College is not good enough, not talented enough on either side of the ball to, like, overwhelm Virginia Tech. That's why they beat Syracuse 17-10. to 10. That's why they beat UConn 21-14. to 14. Army 27 24. Like they just aren't built to blow the doors off somebody. Um, so I think this this game comes down to a lot of what we've talked about all year is winning the turnover battle, it's winning the field position battle, um, converting key uh scoring opportunities. Boston College's defense is one of the very few red zone defenses to actually be worse than Virginia Tech's red zone defense. Um, so that'll be a key kind of like which terrible unit actually is able to win that kind of battle. Um, Thomas Castellanos is going to be a problem. Assuming he's fully healthy, there's a little bit of feels like there's a little bit of nagging injury potential there. He got hurt against UConn, um, was productive against Syracuse. So I think he's going to play, but he wasn't as explosive as he has been in, um, so so that's one to watch. I mean, the running quarterback thing terrifies you to death. He's fast. Um, he's broken almost as many, or he's forced almost as many missed tackles this year running the football as Basial Tootin. So, like, it's tackling in open space and, and all the stuff that Tech's run defense has struggled with this year against guys like Jordan and Trey Benson and Ali from Marshall. Like, it's still there in this game, but it's, for the quarterback instead of the running back. Um, so that, I mean, it, it comes down to that. It comes down to, like I said, those key areas and then the run defense. If Tech's run defense has a pulse, has, can, 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 can limit them somewhat, like they can have a chance to win this game like 28 to 24, 28 to 23 or something, something in the 20s. Um, I don't think. BC's passing game is much of a threat, especially against Tech secondary. So it makes them a little one-dimensional, which you feel good about. Um, Boston College's defensive front is not disruptive by any stretch. Um, Louisville's defensive end has like 40-plus quarterback pressures this year. Boston College, their leader in quarterback pressures is at like 18. Like They just don't play in the backfield as much, which I think is a a, a positive for Virginia Tech because Tech's offense just can't afford the negative plays. We saw what that did against Louisville last week. Doesn't seem like it's a threat um, for Boston College. So you feel comfortable about like drones having a pretty comfortable 
game and not being, you know, just behind the sticks and pressured all the time and all that stuff that, that seems to play well into Virginia Tech's hands. Um, so, I mean, I think it's going to be a close game. They're two pretty similar programs and similar teams. They both defaulted to starting the incumbent experienced quarterback to start the year and then turned to this more dynamic, uh, inexperienced guy. And we're like, Whoa, they're, they're pretty good. Um, and kind of turned their season around. So, I mean, I think it's just going to be another really, really tight game there. Um, I, I guess, you know, one thing that Castellanos has struggled with is, is turnovers, um, both fumbling the ball, he carries it a little loose, and then he's going to have a couple throws um, that that <laughs> I'm sure if you're a BC fan, you would just pull your hair, pull your hair out um, on why, why did you try and force that there? Why make that decision? But um, they've basically decided to live with that because of what he brings on the ground and his athleticism and all that stuff. And that's, that's going to be the main story is, is if Virginia Tech's run defense can track him well enough to prevent him from, from leading the way to um, a victory in the twenties. Yeah. And just to add a, a couple things, I think last week, I mean, Boston college has been dealing with a ton of injuries. Uh, I don't really know the status on everyone that they have a huge injury list, but I think they were down to their fourth, running back at one point against Syracuse last Friday night, uh, winning that game 17 to 10. I think it's interesting. You look at, you know, across the board, they're pretty decent. I think in most metrics, they rank below Virginia Tech. Um, One metric that's interesting to me is that they're 14th in the country in terms of time of possession. And it kind of screams at you when you look at their schedule, who they played, how much they've won by. Like, this is a team that you know, does enough to make it to the fourth quarter. And they are, you know, they're like the Minnesota Vikings of last year in terms of winning one score games. Like they are ending up on the right side of that. And it's worked for them this year due to those injuries. They're able to do enough offensively. They're able to do enough defensively. It's not a team that's going to overwhelm you by any means, as Doug said. And you know, it just seems like they're surviving until the fourth and, and you know, getting that key go-ahead score any way that they can. Um, I do think, you know, when I look at Virginia Tech, like, this is probably the most equal opponent they will have played all year. I think, you know, there are things to, you know, not trying to jump too far ahead, but there are things in the matchup that you like against NC State in terms of their offense, there are things you definitely like against Virginia. When you look at Boston College, it feels like a lot of neutral things that can go either way. Um, and because of that, I'm I'm absolutely with Doug. I think this is going to be another case of, you know, a very slow style, sluggish football game um, where it's going to be somewhere in the 20s. I'd be highly surprised if either team scored in the 30s. Uh, and I th- absolutely think it's going to be a one-score game. And I think, you know, for for either of these teams, like winning a one-score contest in this type of game is like that's almost like you're winning by, I don't know. It's just, it's just it, like every score in this game means a lot. And I think the things you worry about for Virginia Tech are, well, first of all, this is the last chance in this two-year span that 
Virginia Tech has a chance to win a game outside the state of Virginia. This is the last, I guess, like true road game outside of Virginia. Um, and you worry about these slow starts that we've seen all of this year, especially on the road. Like if Boston College jumps out to a 10 point lead, like that's extremely dangerous. So I think this needs to be something where it's tightly contested the entire time. And you really have to show up because both teams want to hang on to the football and and control the time of possession. So I think it's going to be extremely stressful to watch no matter what side you're on. But definitely a, it feels like a one, one score type of game. A couple of things Matei touched on there that I wanted to point out. Like um, their offensive line is probably been the story like Castellanos gets a ton of attention but their offensive line and the turnaround they've had like is the story in their season they got mahogany back she's one of the best guards in the country um their offensive line has turned into like a real strength for them and to the point where they're now playing a sixth offensive lineman as a tight end like 30 plus times per game just because they're so good at run blocking and i think against a Virginia Tech run defense has not been particularly good. Um, in some instances, that's that's a concern that they are just that um, strong and, and, and impactful up front with the run blocking. That of the two teams that want to control the ball, I think Matei said 14th in time of possession. I think Tech is like 20th, so they're like right there. Neck. They both want to do the same thing, but I'd feel more confident in BC consistently being able to do that with the running game than Tech's offensive line. Um, so that'll be something to watch. I think the other thing I mentioned was field position. I think Tech has a huge advantage there. Um, Boston College has two punters that are both not good. Um, they have, they're both, there's 15 punters in ACC that qualify and they're number 14 and 15 in yards per punt. Um, so there's a big swing there in terms of punting and, and I think in tech's ability to win the field goal or field position battle, that could be a little bit of a neutralizer there. If, if, you know, Boston college is starting possessions at the 10 or 15 yard line versus tech at the 35 or 40. Colby texted me, said VT wins by a million. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they did not. He probably did. I'm you're probably not even kidding. No, uh, I think I think I think VT wins. I, I think uh, I would feel more confident, obviously, if it was in Blacksburg and it wasn't a sleepy noon game. I think those two things kind of worry me a little bit, but I think uh, I think Virginia Tech wins this football game. I mean, I'm right there with you guys. I do think it's interesting, though. You know, the hot start thing has been a huge theme and clearly has made it stand on anyone who's watched Virginia Tech this season. Virginia Tech actually hasn't won a game that they trailed at any point. It, obviously, every game starts tied. It came back to tie. But Virginia Tech never relented the lead against Old Dominion, Wake Forest, or Syracuse, Syracuse who they blew out right out of the gate. The only alternative example would be the uh, the Marshall game where they came out hot, they scored, things looked good, and then ultimately they blew it. But 
you've had a handful of games where they got up to a hot start and pretty much by halftime started to assert their dominance. And you had a bunch of games where they went down big and tried to claw back. And with the exception of Louisville, kind of made it a game. But you've essentially been watching two very different types of football games as a Virginia Tech fan. So, yeah, I would recommend getting off to that hot start. But you guys have all said everything I'd want to say. Chestnut Hill scares me. This would feel a lot more like Wake Forest if it was happening within the confines of Lane Stadium. But I don't think uh, Virginia Tech fans at this point, given history and given what we've seen from this team, that they're not a truly dominant force, can circle Boston College and say, all right, we walk out of there with a W. Easy. No. It would be an interesting one to watch. Uh, But any final thoughts? Gentlemen, we've been at it for quite a while. I guess this is what happens when I go to Las Vegas and we have to contain our thoughts <laughs> a little bit. This is two weeks into one. Um, final thought, I would say, should we go around the horn and say score predictions? I can start. I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Answering my own question. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to say Virginia Tech does indeed win their first game outside the state of. Virginia for Brent Pry as a head coach. I'm going to go 24-21. John Love walks it off. MVP. MVP. Comes back. Wins it. Yeah, I don't know. I feel, It's going to be like, I, I, I really do feel like it's going to be late into the fourth quarter, tied, and then someone has to win it. Yeah, I think BC's either either extremely due for a blowout on one side or the other, or uh, or they're just a team that plays a lot of close games because that's kind of who they are as a decent offensive, def- decent defensive team playing at home, I think helps them. I said earlier that I am in show me mode on the road with um, Virginia Tech and Brent Pry, so I'm going to – I think I've picked Tech to win this game in every single like predictions update – we've done this year, but I'm going to go with Boston College in this game, uh, 27 to 22. I think it's going to be a funky, weird, low-scoring fight game, and I just don't, at this point, Tech's 1-9 and nine on the road under Brent Pry, and the one win is against Liberty. And so until um, until we get to two weeks from now against UVA, I'm going to pick um, Tech to a to lose on the road until they show something different. I'm going to go Virginia Tech 24, Boston College 17, Boschel Tootin walks it off. Okay, we got two walk-offs. A walk? Like, what kind of walk-off are we talking about here? I think late in the fourth. I think late in the fourth, he's going to have a a run to... So go ahead. Yeah. And then walk off the field so the defense can come on and the game. (laughs) Everything about these two teams make me think that this is going to be a weird, stupid game of football. <laughs> and I actually was trying to find if there's any scoregamis left in low-scoring games in college football. There is not, unless you want me to predict that the game will be 
I don't know. None of those scores are even possible with the current rules. So I'll go with a somewhat normal one. I'll say it's going to be 27-23 Virginia Tech. Enough to make the fan base want to pull their hair out at times. But your Minnesota Vikings thing might be right on the money. They've gotten a good draw up there with Boston College. Enough to save Jeff Halfley's job, at least. I thought it was going to be done. I mean, you wonder, too. They just made it. You know, there was a lot of talk after the game against Syracuse to getting to six wins. That seemed like, you know, that was that was the bar for this Boston College team. I know they rallied off five wins to get there, but you wonder if the boys are going to be motivated to keep that up or if it's like, hey, you know, we did what we had to do and, you know, rest whatever happens from here on out. Like, you know, we're not going to war every week like we have been. Like, it's fine. Whatever happens is fine. Perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> if they could get up for the Army game and the UConn game, they'll probably get up. <laughs> I'm trying to find new angles here. <laughs> hey, Andrew, you said you were looking for a scoregami in college football. Virginia Tech has a scoregami database. Uh, Damian Salas keeps it pretty updated. 27-23, which you picked, has happened only one other time in Virginia Tech. And when was it? 1958, they beat Richmond 27-23. How could you forget that one? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, any other news and notes out or in and around college football that you'd like to mention? Uh, I don't even know if I've said it on this podcast, but I have been a firm believer in the fraudulence of the University of Southern California. And <laughs> that ended up being correct. Duke's season is effectively over if Riley Leonard's hurt. Nebraska playing for their first bowl appearance in what I believe to be six years. Not a good loss to Michigan State last week. No. Yeah. And Matt Loxley playing for his job on the other side with Maryland in this one. Uh, Maryland, a two-and-a-half-point favorite in Lincoln. Randomly, I saw Maryland and Northwestern. It was an absolute barn burner somehow when I was up in Chicago a couple <laughs> weekends ago. Northwestern pulled off the upset there. But the people are wondering. We haven't done a will Nebraska get to six? Like we the are last five was, right now? They're at they're five and four. I think they have Iowa, Wisconsin, and in Maryland. And Maryland. Yeah. So my analysis on it would be you're Nebraska. You're in a similar situation to Virginia Tech where you feel like all three games are winnable, but all three games are also losable. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in the case of Nebraska, two of those games are more on the side of losable, especially Iowa's defense at least. I think you got to beat Maryland at home. I think you got to beat Maryland. Uh, Wisconsin's gettable. And I say that as a Wisconsin uh, fan. I feel like Maryland kind of reminds me of UVA, Iowa, NC State, and then Boston College and Wisconsin. It's like no matter what year it is, Nebraska and Virginia Tech are just living in a parallel simulation. So that's that's where this podcast has gone. Yeah, but, but, but that simulation – <laughs> is Iowa is Virginia Tech and Nebraska is Virginia, at least recently. 
matter how good the teams are, Iowa's going to find out a way to come out on top. Like, it is what it is. Uh, all right. Anything else in the world of college football? Oh, okay. Actually, really last thing. Really last thing. This is one of my thoughts. This circles back to everything we were talking about an hour and a half ago. Come Charlotte, assuming things play out the way that they think they will. Does Louisville have a very legitimate chance to beat Florida State and those playoff hopes? I was impressed. And when you look at the one loss on their schedule, it was one of those anomaly losses that even a team like Clemson in their heyday used to get. You turn the ball over four times and you lose to a team that's far worse than you. Is Louisville the kind of team that on that national stage in Charlotte could hang with Florida State and maybe surprise a lot of people? I definitely think so. Uh, they need to get a little healthier, I think. Um, but you look at their talent level in terms of like top end talent to compete with Florida State. They they're right, right there. Jordan, probably an ACC Player of the Year candidate. Um, one of the favorites there. Plummer is a experienced, stable quarterback. Thrash, we talked about him earlier. Is a really productive wide receiver. Like, I feel like they have enough offensively and defensively. They are right there. Um, two really strong corners, a good defensive end. Like they've got enough. They're a top 20 defense probably with two corners to go toe to toe with what uh, Florida state's wideouts. Like I think, I think that would be an interesting matchup. Um, and, and certainly not one where you head into it. Like Florida state is a heavy favorite. Um, I, I, de- I definitely think Louisville has a pretty good chance that, but like I said, they do have to get healthier keep Jordan off the shelf, keep thrash off the shelf um, before, before that game. I have a very long winded response. No, I'm just kidding. I think, I think it'll be competitive. I think, I know we've gone on for a while. I really need to pee. (laughs) (laughs) I think Florida state wins that game by 10, but it would be like a, a good ACC champion game. I think they're much better than some of the other ones. Seriously. Yeah. Okay, well, that's our sign. Evan has literally dropped off. He's <laughs> no longer with us. You're right. We haven't hit Middle Tennessee State. They lost to Jerry Kill. 14-7 in their last one. Who, who has orchestrated a monster turnaround at Coach of the Year. New Mexico State. God, we haven't even gotten to the Jerry Kill parallel thing that is <laughs> clear and obviously true that's happening right now. But... <laughs> This is what happens when you don't record for, you know, it's I know. Been two weeks. I tried to record at like one o'clock in the morning, but apparently yeah. everyone's got a job. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, for those listening, I do have a job. Uh, <laughs> just putting that out there. But yeah, we'll have more time to talk about everything that's going on in the world of college football. I guess next time, either going to be a moderately optimistic podcast or the sky will be falling so prep yourself for that folks but enjoy the game on saturday a nooner gives you the opportunity to go to whatever pumpkin patches you need to in the afternoon uh from there subscribe vip vt scoop 24 7 sports andrew alex 
Doug Bellman, Matei Sis, our great leader, Evan G. Watkins. We all thank you for joining us. We'll catch you next week. And as always, my friends, go Hopes. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets.